Chapter Seven of the Reign of George the Sixth, nineteen hundred to nineteen twenty five. A forecast written in the year seventeen sixty three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, A.D. nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty. Foreign Affairs. Spain and Russia intervene in the war. Treaty of Madrid. Preparations in Great Britain. Parliament meets. An Allied army mobilized in Switzerland. Duke of Devonshire conquers Flanders and Holland. George could not have left France at a more critical time. His prodigious successes had kindled the jealousy of several of his neighbors, who wished to see the rapidity of his conquests stopped. A series of victories had raised his character as a commander to an extreme high pitch. He possessed the reputation of not only being the greatest general of his time, but even one of the most celebrated that ever existed. He was the sovereign of a powerful kingdom, and was equally formidable both by sea and land. He had given France a terrible blow by one successful battle, and bid fair to conquer the whole kingdom in another campaign. These circumstances, at the same time that they raised the jealousy of his neighbors, equally occasioned a dread of his power. All wished to clip his soaring wings, but no one singly dared to attempt it. His old enemy, the Tsar Peter, was engaged in a second war with the Turkish Emperor Bajazet, which had been carried on with various success for two campaigns, and a late rebellion of the Danes under Count Stormer had obliged him to divide his land forces. Yet engaged as he was, he was ready to come into any alliance against the King of Great Britain. Indeed, he could no longer be the enemy he formerly proved, for the Russian fleet, as its rise was swift, so its declension was rapid, and powerful as Peter had lately been at sea, yet he was now by no means in a condition of making any naval opposition of consequence to the fleets of England. Charles V, who at this time sat on the throne of Spain, was a weak prince, but governed by the Count de Leon, a minister of great abilities and unbounded ambition. From the moment George distinguished himself on the continent of Europe, he became his enemy professed, and by his intrigues endeavored to unite the whole of Europe against him. He had supplied the late King of France with immense sums of money, he had put the whole force of Spain in motion, and waited only for a proper opportunity to declare openly against the King of Great Britain. Spain was in a flourishing condition. The acquisition of Portugal and Brazil was very considerable and having been so fortunate as to possess a succession of able ministers, her revenues were in good order, and her forces well disciplined and numerous. She had a fleet of forty sail of the line ready manned besides frigates. Italy at this time enjoyed a profound peace, the kings of Sicily and Venice having for some time compromised all their disputes. The Emperor Frederick the Ninth was in close alliance with George, and the German princes neutral, but ready to let their troops to whoever would hire them. The Swiss cantons were also in friendship with Great Britain. Footnote. Stevenson, Volume 1, page 63, in footnote. Such was the state of Europe when the Battle of Alençon struck a terror into most of its sovereigns. The Count de Leon had some time before entered into a negotiation with the Tsar to form an alliance against George. This battle hastened their proceedings, and a treaty was soon agreed on between them for the protection of Philip and signed at Madrid. 
Peter engaged to join the Spanish fleet with sixty sail of the line and to send ten thousand foot and five thousand horse to assist Philip. Spain was to march an army of sixty thousand men into France to act against the English. In return, Philip engaged, as soon as George was driven out of his dominions, to assist Charles with all his forces, and to recover Milan from the King of Sicily. Footnote. Was this for the benefit of the King of Venice? Or was Spain dreaming of recovering Milan, lost since 1712? End footnote. The last article was secret. But his Sicilian majesty found means to come at the designs of his enemies. The 1st of October the King of Spain declared war against Great Britain, and on the ninth he was followed by the Tsar. George, in the meantime, was not dilatory in opposing both preparations and negotiations against those of his enemies. He no sooner arrived in England than he dispatched orders to Milford for a squadron of twenty ships of the line and fourteen frigates to be equipped with all expedition, another of ten sail and eleven frigates at Portsmouth, twenty line of battleships and nine frigates at Hull, fifteen sail were almost ready for sea at Plymouth, nine at Cork in Ireland, and five in Lynn. In all, seventy-nine sail of the line besides frigates. He had a squadron of fifteen sail off Toulon, under Admiral Tonson, and ten in the channel commanded by Phillips. The Duke of Grafton hastened down to Hull to quicken the preparations for fitting out the Grand Squadron, which was to sail for the Baltic from thence. Orders were given for the fleets at Plymouth, Portsmouth, and Lynn, with the squadron in the channel, to rendezvous at Hull as fast as they were got ready for service, that a powerful fleet might sail from thence early in the spring, before a Russian one could come out of the Baltic. Never were such prodigious preparations carried on in a more spirited manner. New ships were building at all the ports of Great Britain and Ireland, and even in the immense colonies of America. Four ships of forty guns each were on the stocks at Quebec, ten at Boston, and five at Philadelphia. Nor was the king's attention only carried towards his navy. Twenty new regiments were raised in Great Britain and eight in Ireland. All sorts of military preparations went on with equal vigor. The Parliament meeting in the beginning of winter, the session was opened with a very sensible speech from the throne, in which His Majesty laid before them the state of affairs both at home and abroad. He explained the necessity of prosecuting the war in the most vigorous manner, and repelling all attacks that might be made by the members of the alliance which was formed against him. There were two parties at this time in the Parliament. The one was for making a peace as soon as possible, to avoid a war with all Europe. These urged that the conquests His Majesty had made in France, however glorious they might seem, were certainly contrary to the interest of the kingdom, as it would be highly absurd to think of keeping them, even if it was in our power. This was their chief argument, and the Duke of Bedford, who was in disgrace, was at their head. But as the opposite party, who were entirely guided by the pleasure of the king, so great was his reputation, and so universal was the good opinion entertained of him, were much the strongest, after a few debates, it was determined to address his majesty and to thank him for his design of prosecuting the war with vigor. And before they were prorogued, they granted him thirteen millions, every shilling of which was raised by taxes within the year, to the surprise of all Europe so extensive was the British trade at the time. His Majesty's negotiations were as spirited as his military preparations. He sent the Earl of Chesterfield as ambassador to the Emperor Frederick, the Duke of Marlborough to the King of Sicily, 
and Mr. Wharton to the States of Switzerland. A treaty was soon signed between himself, the Emperor, and his Sicilian Majesty, in opposition to the alliance. Frederick engaged to attack the Russians if they entered the empire, and George took ten thousand of his men into his pay. The King of Sicily furnished him with ten thousand more at his own expense, on condition that they should be recalled if that monarch was attacked himself, and that the King of Great Britain should send an army of twenty thousand men to his assistance. Moreover, George hired eight thousand Bavarians and six thousand Swiss infantry. Such were the measures this vigilant monarch took to repulse the attempts of his powerful enemies. No sooner was these treaties signed than the ten thousand troops furnished by the King of Sicily marched from the neighborhood of Turin, and crossing the Alps near Bornico, joined the Swiss troops and remained in camp till the imperialists and Bavarians arrived, when they formed an army of thirty-four thousand men. Footnote. This is an unintelligible march. Does the author mean Bormio? If so, the army followed the Valtelleri route. But this would be a bad one for reaching Zurich, its ultimate goal. Perhaps Jornico is meant, and the St. Goddard line was taken. End footnote. The king sent the Duke of Devonshire orders to detach the Earl of Berry with five thousand men to put himself at their head and lead them into France. This was no easy task. Philip, who had recruited his army and was reinforced with fifteen thousand Spaniards, lay in his way to intercept him. French Comte, part of Lorraine and Alsace, were in his possession, so that the road to Switzerland was entirely blocked up. But this able general deceived the French king, or, rather, the Marshal Saletta, who had the command, and making a flying march passed by his army and entered Switzerland in safety. The Allied troops were in the neighborhood of Zurich. Barry placing himself at their head, entered French Comte without opposition, for Saletta was too weak, though far superior in numbers, to prevent him. Perceiving the weakness of the enemy, Barry laid siege to Besançon, expecting an easy conquest, but a brave governor commanding in it, he was obliged to open the trenches against it. In the meantime, his grace of Devonshire was not idle. He had collected forty thousand men to drive Philip from Lyon and attack that city. But an unforeseen event changed his design. General Somers, who commanded ten thousand men in Hainault, was unfortunately surprised in a dark night by a small body of the enemy's troops in that province, and the Frenchman pursuing his blow was attended with some success. This affair called off the attention of the Duke from the southern parts, and pointed out the necessity of first reducing all the northern provinces. Instead, therefore, of marching to Lyon, he moved with his army towards Flanders. The French troops, although elated with their success, did not dare to stand their ground. Their commander very prudently gave up all thoughts of keeping the field against the Duke, and conjecturing that his grace would not make so long a march without attempting to reduce the country, he divided his troops into small parties, and threw them into the strong towns in the Flemish provinces. The sea-coast was already in the hands of the English, quite to Blankenburg, with the whole province of Artois. Devonshire, being joined by General Summers and his scattered troops, divided his army into two parts, with one Summers advanced toward Namur, with the design to take that city, and afterwards to reduce all the adjacent provinces. The Duke at the head of the other made a flying march to Antwerp, and surprised that city. His detachments, by the way, conquered all Dutch Brabant and Dutch Flanders, 
this country so famous in history was no longer the strongest spot in europe many of that vast list of fortresses which in the great marlborough's day took so much time to master now opened their gates to the duke of devonshire on the first summons having secured the provinces in his rear he advanced into liege and coasting along the Meuse, took nimogen nothing now opposed the most rapid conquests whole provinces were overrun in a few days the french garrisons in holland were weak to the last degree and the dutch whose spirits were sunk in their slavery had no inclination to assist their cruel masters rotterdam the hog utrecht and even amsterdam itself opened its gates to the conqueror in one word all the seven provinces were in the hands of the english by the end of the campaign december nineteen nineteen to january nineteen twenty general somers had no less success in his expedition namur surrendered in five days and luxembourg part of champagne and lorraine were immediately conquered this prodigious success struck a damp into george's enemies while philip was lying inactive and waiting for reinforcements the english had conquered an immense territory and were every day extending their possessions the duke leaving twenty thousand men under summers to take up their quarters in the conquered country returned with the rest of his army to winter in paris End of chapter seven recording by philip gould